This episode is sponsored by pageswithwages.com, an audio archive of classic religious and spiritual literature read by celebrities, such as the Old Testament, read by Gok Wan, the Book of Shadows, read by Michael Portillo, and the Bhagavad Gita, read by Darcy Bossel, and many more. Follow the link in the episode description to receive a 1% discount off your subscription and first chapter of The Moon in a Dewdrop by Zen Master Dogen, read by me, Dame Judy Dench. Well, that just happened. Xin Yin Kuai Lu. Xin Yin Kuai Lu. Which I'm unreliably informed by Barry is Happy New Year in Mandarin. I think that that's a much better and more topical greeting than last week's Antipodean effort. Unless, of course, Barry's winding me up and I've just offended the entire Chinese nation with his recipe for rhino horn hot pots with fruit bat goujons, which I might add was delicious. If you can be asked to cast your mind back to last week, you'll remember that Barry, my pretend friend and assistant, had to be resuscitated after holding his breath for longer than even Wim Hof recommends. Well, this week, it was brought to my attention by the Eastbourne chapter of St John's Ambulance that Barry was found sitting cross-legged and upright in his bedsit, as dead as a village hall doornail. This time, it appeared that he had attempted sitting in meditation for a whole week. This, he claims, as naturally I have yet again revivified my mythical chum, is because I didn't offer any advice on how long to actually meditate for. Placing to one side the consumer idiocy of this hypothetical twonk, I probably should start this week's episode by addressing something that I should have addressed in last week's episode, which incidentally is how I started the week before last week's episode last week. Anyway, how long should you meditate for? Well, it kind of depends on how much meditation experience you have. If you're a genuine beginner, then the maxim of little and often is a good one to follow. By this I mean that it's better to do two or three smaller sessions every day than to attempt one marathon three-hour sesh a week. Start small, sitting for ten mins maybe, twice a day. If you can't spare twenty minutes in your day then you're too busy, as the bumper sticker rightly says. I find it's best to divide these sittings into morning and evening, ideally straight away as you get up and then directly before bed in the evening. Then, as you settle into a daily practice, gradually build up to 30 to 40 minutes twice a day. This is ample for a home practice when done alongside mindfulness exercises post-meditation throughout your day. Easy, right? No, it isn't. However keen you are in the beginning, the characteristic challenges of a meditation practice will grind your eagerness into a fine dust. Don't be put off, though. Everyone, even the seasoned meditators, have been through and occasionally still go through these difficulties. I'll address the trials of practice at a later date, so until then, just turn up, sit down, breathe and pay attention. Remember, you have everything you need to do this right now. Last week we also met Mickey, an irascible Japanese macaque who without fail can be found gyrating the handle of his marble machine, or in other words, our conscious experience. For those of you not available last week, Mickey is a hard-working but not particularly conscientious monkey who, according to his LinkedIn profile, likes complex carbohydrates and Indonesian jazz but is not so fond of climate change and Moby. And who can blame him? I hope you found some time this week to try meditating. 
If you're a genuine beginner, then I'm sure that you will have come up against some classic obstacles to practice. I feel that there are primarily three sets of issues when starting a meditation practice. These can be imagined as problems during meditations, problems post meditation and problems before meditation. In this episode, I want to touch upon an absolute humdinger of a challenge in the final category, and that is procrastination. In the spirit of transparency, before writing this next bit, I got up from my desk, apparently unable to ignore my pangs of starvation, and ate three hot cross buns and a cream egg. I then sat down for another 32 minutes, sipping tea, and alternately checking my emails and watching out the windows for squirrels. Coming back to my senses, I girded my loins to return to my keyboard, but on my way upstairs I noticed a small stain on the step that looked a bit like a turtle, which made me think of that documentary I watched the other night on the effect of humans' plastic use on marine life in the Mediterranean. Ah, the Mediterranean, I thought, as I lowered myself onto the stair. The sun-bleached and orange-tree-lined marbled streets of Valencia. The turquoise sea, the bullring, the Iberico ham, the paella and the ice-cold cervezas. The next thing I remember is being back in the kitchen, rustling up a fairly impressive, if non-traditional, selection of tapas from the jars in my fridge. Slapping myself around the face in disgust, I stormed back up the stairs, cursing the turtle as I strode past. Eventually, somehow, I got round to writing this. Oh, is that, is that a squirrel? As you can see, procrastination is a potentially serious challenge to achieving anything. And sometimes the issues when you're sat in meditation are dwarfed by the fact that you can't even get to your cushion in the first place. So what actually is procrastination and how can we alleviate this terrible human affliction? Well, thanks for asking. Let's get a definition and see what Buddhism thinks about it. Procrastination is the concept of leaving something that could be done now or today and deciding to do it at a later time. Essentially, it's substituting an action that you would prefer to do for something that you would rather not. You may want to sit down and meditate and have all the good intentions in the world, but instead you find yourself doing something, anything else. Usually the substituted action is considered by you to be subjectively more interesting or pleasurable than your initial desire. And yeah, I get it. Sitting still in silence doesn't sound too thrilling, particularly if your wife is downstairs watching Death in Paradise or your partner's organised a murder mystery party themed around the characters of a first-class BBC detective show based in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, I tell you what, that, that show's worth the licence fee on its own. Every week I give up my own award, the Golden Bomber Club, for the most outrageously bad acting slash Caribbean accent. No, I mean, that was way too good, right? It's always got to be a bit more sort of like Welsh or Newcastle-y. Oh, pet, I repet, go, let's go away and have a, a chicken palm on a can of lit like. <clears throat> I digress. So what can you do to avoid procrastination? Well, it would seem the best line of attack is awareness. And by that, I mean simply looking at procrastination under the impartial spotlight of attention. Firstly, just witness this feeling as it arises and acknowledge it without giving yourself a hard time about it. Then notice any bodily sensations that might accompany it. And notice these two and simply watch them pass. This practice of noticing the feeling of procrastination as it arises in consciousness 
allows the potential shilly-shallier to pause, to witness and to free themselves from the seemingly unrepentant flow of consciousness and give them a space to decide to respond differently this time. This is literally meditation in action. Once we can recognise the origin and patterns that are synonymous with this form of laziness, we can learn alternative approaches to dealing with it. Zen Buddhism, as far as I understand it, is pretty unforgiving when it comes to procrastination. In a monastic or residential training setting, it's said that the routine becomes your teacher, meaning that the days are long and arduous and every second is accounted for. In this environment, one's attention is not to, supposed to slip from the present moment, whether that be sweeping the path or eating or having a dump. This prescriptive regimen leaves little room for procrastination and I'd imagine efficiently sorts the wheat from the chaff as only the genuinely committed student would tolerate such a rigorous schedule with many hours of sitting, work and study. Naturally, many people find this frustrating after a while, to say the least. But in this particular way of studying Zen, the intensity, silence and monotony of the waking hours serve to show the students who can manage such a programme that the way of Zen is nothing special and that the enlightenment they seek is as likely to be found in the sound of a birch twig broom raking over a dusty path as it is in the solemn and sonorous grumble of a chanted sutra. In the Soto school of Zen during meditation sessions, the Kyosaku, rather wonderfully translated as encouragement stick, is used or even requested. This is a long stick made of slats of bamboo and is wielded by the head monk, who walks back and forth behind the monks, and if he sees one slouching or sleeping, he gently places the stick on the monk's shoulders as a warning, and then POW! whacks them back into reality. In researching the encouragement stick, I ran across a piece that informed me of a sadly now defunct practice in British churches in the 1700s. The sluggard waker, as it was known, was a stout pole of wood with a large brass knob on the end. If a parishioner was found to be dozing off or otherwise mucking around, he was clocked soundly on the noggin as a reminder to pay heed to the word of God. Women were spared the rod, however, and if they were found to be a little glassy-eyed while Father Augustus prattled on, they were gently tickled from their reverie with a fox's tail. Oh, another clear-cut example of the patriarchy in action. Anyway, where was I? Yes, the traditional, i.e. monastic or residential training side of Zen Buddhism doesn't tolerate procrastination. The unforgiving nature of the Zen method of self-discipline works best in a cohort of practitioners who may try to work and practice the hardest so as not to let the others down. In this authoritarian environment, any chances for dithering that might surface are quashed by the severity of the regimen and then the people further up the chain of command. This said, I would imagine that the practitioner is supported by the Sangha or the community of other monks and students and therefore at least has the opportunity to share his self-discipline concerns with them. This shared experience, this feeling of not being alone, I imagine might go some way to ameliorating an otherwise potentially disagreeable situation. This method, the, the just do it approach, is effective. However, the willpower required to apply it is a finite resource. For some reason, we cannot reliably tell or will ourselves to do something. And without awareness of this issue, a sense of failure, I'm afraid, is inevitable. 
If this model were successful, there would be no self-help industry and you wouldn't be here listening to me because your everyday affirmations of I'm not going to drink, smoke, eat, get angry, binge watch Vera and masturbate would have worked. By the way, the last two options there weren't connected unless, of course, eccentric menopausal northern women solving crimes in a grubby raincoat floats your boat, in which case you're probably beyond help. The self-discipline required to prepare yourself and sit in meditation for one hour a day can seem positively daunting. The voice inside your head will provide you with inexhaustible excuses for not doing it. Sitting still in silence is a hard sell in anyone's world, and after a while even those dirty dishes begin to look appealing. I wish I had a formula or a pill or a gnarly staff of wisdom to bash thrice on the floor and like sparks and frogs would appear, and from then on all of our laziness problems would be sorted. But sadly that isn't the case. I don't have an answer for you, but you do. If you can practice being able to watch the feeling of procrastination and the thoughts surrounding it as they arise and just be with them without getting involved, then you're almost all the way there. This way you can observe how they arrive, how their intensity fluctuates and how eventually that feeling fades and disappears. Ironically, meditation is the perfect instrument for us to explore and evade the threat of procrastination. As I've said before, we only have to turn up. Another thing worth noticing is that when you end up eventually doing the thing that you've been desperately trying to avoid, the task that you've been ghosting is generally not as abhorrent as you'd predicted. Unless it's a tax return or season seven of the Gilmore Girls, then you're on your own there. That's just, just bad decision making. And speaking of bad decision making, if you found yourself listening to this and, and laughing like you just smoked 580 micrograms of Salvanorin A, the potent and psychotropic trans neocleridane diterpenoid, well, put down your pipe and go to patreon.com forward slash wages of zen, where, I'm told, you can donate whatever you've got left after you've bought all your dark web narcotics, gingerbread and nappy cream. And that brings us nicely to this week's random final thought. And this week it takes the shape of a quiz, a quiz about sound. Sound, much like love, is all around us, and bringing your attention to the sounds you hear is a great mindfulness practice. Next time you meditate or you go for a walk, tune into the sound around you, either focus on the wind or some bird song, or even the sound of a passing car. Simply notice these sounds, and notice too how you will try to attach to them by naming them or imagining what might be making the sound. This might feel a little strange at first, but you'll soon get used to allowing the raw characteristics of sound to come to you, witnessing them without naming or judging, just being with the sound. This type of listening can also be used for music and speech. Sometimes, particularly when in conversation with Eggpan Stan, I reach a level of indiscriminate listening so pure that the words falling out of his mouth just sound like gibberish grunts and squeaks. To be fair, though, it, it isn't much better when I'm listening to him normally. So, here's the quiz. Sound is all around, and I found this sound in my house. I'd like you to listen to it, and then tell me what you think it is from the options below. Answers on a postcard to Death in Paradise Fan Club, Boomting Towers, Trinidad, Wales. 
Final submission for postal entries is 21st of June 2012. And here is the sound, what I found. So, there it was. What do you reckon? Was it A. The sound of a dog's bowl being moved slowly across the floor? Was it B. The song of a cyborg nightingale from the year 3000? C. The sound of a dairy farmer retrieving his pencil case from a barrel full of glass eyes? Was it D. The noise a record player makes if you replace the vinyl with a disc made from the souls of dead piglets? Was it E? The shrill, gristly whistle of Mickey the Macaque's elbow joint after a particularly heavy weekend. Was it F? The song of a humpback whale that swallowed a ship carrying a consignment of dog bowls. Could it be G? A new type of music which Spotify will try and convince us is the next big thing. What about H? The Grim Reaper sharpening his scythe with the shin bone of an Inuit. It could be I, what you'll hear shortly before you never go ice skating again. Could it be J, Mary Berry's ancient lazy Susan in desperate need of some WD-40? It could be K, the sound of a horny male walrus, his passions inflamed by a combination of helium and camembert. Could it be L, a window salesman with hands made of chalk trying to open a jar of elderberry jam? Could it be M, the sound of an electric hedge trimmer being scraped down the side of a 1992 Honda Civic? Was it N, a giant milk bottle being rolled uphill over a bevy of tinfoil swans? Or it might even be O, what the dentist sounded like in 1874. Could it be P, the granite millstones of a working country mill with an anteater stuck between them? Is it Q, an audiobook rec recording of the architecture of Sumatra by Caroline Antichrist? Is it R, the sound the Eiffel Tower makes upon ejaculation? Is it S, bongo messiah Phil Collins stirring a fresh batch of his paperclip soup? Could it be T, John the Baptist playing chess against an army of deep fried mice? Or U? The unbearable din caused by the excision of a tiny French horn from the colon of an ungrateful earwig. Was it V, the taste of COVID-22? Or W, the sound of a man wearing a suit made from teeth being dragged through a field of phyllo pastry dog bowls? Was it X, Iron Man throwing banjos into a wood chipper? Or Y? The sound of two Dobermans farting after eating a bucket of iPhones and a bag of sherbet lemons. Or finally, could it be Z? The sound of Eggpan Stan washing back a fruit bat goujon with a refreshing margarita made from molten salt, mayo, molasses and powdered parrot feet. Well, I guess I'll see you next week for some more uh, self-indulgent claptrap and maybe even a little bit about Zen. Stay safe, look after yourselves, and don't have nightmares. <laughs>